0: Well hello and welcome to this week's edition of Pipe Up The Organ Podcast. I'm David Pipe and joining me today is Tom Bell, who is the Royal College of Organists Northern Region Director or Director of RCO North in its shortened form. Tom, thanks very much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me.
1: If slightly surreal over the internet.
0: Well, we're we're getting used to it. We're getting used to it slowly. Well, um, some of our listeners may have been keeping up with the Leeds International Organ Festival plans pre-COVID-19. And one thing we were really excited about doing was a a complete... Uh, well, the first complete UK performance of the Orgelbuchlein project. Now, of course, you've been instrumental in this and you've played abroad, I think, in Holland quite recently. Perhaps you can just give us a bit of background about this whole project that's been going on.
1: Yeah, well, some people listening to this podcast would have uh, heard pieces from Bach's Orgelbuchlein and will know that it's a a collection of hymn preludes, chorale preludes, that Bach wrote when he was in Weimar. Um, And the manuscript for this thing has... A, a great number of blank pages so he wrote in all the titles of all the the hymns, all the chorales he wanted to set uh, in organ music form uh, and he he wrote something, was it 46 pieces? You'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, David. Um, he, he wrote 46 pieces, uh, or is it 44? Uh, and basically, there's 118 blank ones, but you know what hymns he was going to set. Uh, so the project is curated and created, indeed, by William Whitehead, who's another organist from the UK. Uh, and it's set out to complete the Ogle book line, commissioning composers uh, to write something not in the style of Bach, although they can. They can write in whatever style they like, Uh, but they have to stick to the sort of Orgelbuchlein zeitgeist. So, in terms of length, in terms of texture, in terms of uh, the way in which the chorale melody is treated, etc., etc., etc. But stylistically, it's completely free uh, because indeed Bach is very free with his style. There's all sorts of things in evidence in the Orgelbuchlein and elsewhere in his work. Uh, And so, the result is at least eight hours, possibly slightly over eight hours worth of music uh and it's just spectacularly diverse you've got your your bach pieces uh and then obviously the 118 commissions some in style of bach some in style of brahms some in there's well there's there's one that's a uh a sort of reggae piece i mean there's just all every every style you can imagine is in there minimalism uh <laughs> you know sort of modernism anything is represented it's fabulous kaleidoscopic and we the first complete performance of the whole thing took place in amsterdam last year and it was it was quite a marathon i, I ate a lot of flapjack to get me through it was like a very <laughs> lo- it was like going for a very long walk in the lake district you know
0: and am i right i'm right in saying that when you perform it complete you also incorporate the original bach quran preludes don't you
1: yes so i mean you could present it in any way you liked, i suppose but yeah it, it, it's fundamental to it that the, the bach is in there uh, but i mean there'd be different ways of doing it you could perform your way through it chronologically. Barker arranges his uh, collection. Uh, It takes you through the church year and then through other different... well, like a, like a modern hymn book, really, there are different sections, you know, so you, you go through Advent and Christmas and all the rest of it, but there's a, a section for uh, the departed for funerals or whatever and all sorts of things like that, um, and catechism, chorales, uh, blah, blah, blah. So you could go through that from start to finish. Thing is, a lot of the bark pieces are at the start. So what we did in Amsterdam was to mix it up a little bit more and group things thematically, but also in other ways as well. So you had a smattering of bark right the way through, um, but then, uh, you know, separated by these. Extraordinary uh, contributions
0: from other composers, and it's obviously quite, a, as you've said, quite a diversity of composers. Are, are there any there you'd be happy to mention? Perhaps to, dare I say any favourite settings you had to play when you were taking part? Are there any composers you could possibly give us a a, a little um, a sort of flavour for?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, on the condition you don't ask me to remember the precise titles in German of the pieces. in <laughs> Question so, you know like spellings and all. hundred <laughs> and forty something of the things. Um, so yeah. I, I, I mean, I've got a soft spot for some of um, the pieces in particular simply because I originally premiered them. So the uh, the project... Uh, the, none of the pieces being performed in Amsterdam were being performed for the first time individually. They've all, all been commissioned for... Concert performance at some point in the preceding few years. That the thing that was new was doing it all in one go because the project is now complete in that sense. Uh, So there's a couple that I've done. There's a a Belgian composer called Benoit Mernier who wrote a piece which is absolutely gorgeous um, and plays around with the harmonics that you can achieve on the organ. So it uses a stop that speaks uh, a twelfth higher than written uh, and. Using that against uh, stuff he writes on other pitches uh, creates these amazing resonances. So that's really, really very beautiful, very elegant piece. And then there's a piece by an Irish composer called Solfer Carlyle, um, which I really enjoy playing as well. It's sort of slightly minimalist-y, I suppose. I'm not sure whether she'd appreciate that description, but it's... it. Um, again there's an elegance to it and a sophistication and it's just colourful to listen to and then another piece which wasn't one of the ones i originally premiered but i did perform it in amsterdam is by a composer called barnaby martin and i think if memory serves that piece was the winner of a competition run by choir and organ magazine some years ago and it received its first performance i think was at st paul's cathedral i think played by tom winpenny who's now at st albans and i mean it's just it's just lovely um, it's just, it's, again, I just particularly enjoy playing that piece. I know I keep saying, oh, it's lovely, it's really nice, it's really elegant. I'm not coming up with a, a great array of adjectives. It's just, um, I think they'll be the three standout ones for me. But there are so many, you see. I mean, I performed 40-something of them in Amsterdam, and there wasn't a dud, to be honest with you. I think they're all strong, but there are definitely ones which I've got uh, a particular affection for. I've got to also mention the Jacques Van Ortmersen one. I don't know if you know that. nun Ruin alle Velde, um, which is... Uh, Particularly poignant. I mean, I I learnt with Jacques, and uh, of course he died uh, a few years ago, uh, and that piece is actually um, it's an evening hymn, I think, or maybe it is actually for a funeral. So it's particularly sort of yeah poignant to have played that in Amsterdam, where I studied with him, uh, was 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 quite something. And it, it, that's a minimalist piece; it's absolutely gorgeous. There are videos of him what? playing it actually on the internet.
0: He was quite a character. I remember, I think, Maywell had been an Oundle course that you, we were both on at the same time. And I have a, a pretty vivid recollection of him playing pool or snooker with a, a cigarette or a cigar. Now, whether I put these all at wearing a raincoat, I may have got all these wrong here, but he was certainly quite, quite, quite a dynamic personality, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: and you just learned so much. He, he had this encyclopedic uh, knowledge of, of early music. And so my scores where I studied a piece with him are full of book recommendations or all sorts of words which I'd never heard before, you know, technical terms, and, you know, something or other from whichever treatise and so on and so forth. And he just had that all in his
0: brain. I wish I could do that. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite as... I mean, thinking about the Orga project, I mean, this is almost a heretical statement, but I think a lot of people might think of the organ being a very sort of old-fashioned Uh, almost antiquated instrument and might even think that people aren't writing new music for the organ. Now, clearly, this is not true from what you've been telling me just now. But um, I know also you do a lot of contemporary music yourself. What do you think about the current scene of organ composition? Because we've just heard that, you know, you said uh, so many pieces are strong. Everything there is worth playing, not a dud. You know, are there any things you could say to people who might say, well, the organ is, you know, the organ finished at v door I'm, I'm not saying that's my view at all but
1: <laughs> um yeah, well i, I the, the reason why modern music appeals to me i should should add i mean somebody once said to me do you only play modern music which i found was quite astonishing because i've I, I, i've recorded the complete works of Brahms from the an organ not far from where you're sitting in Leeds at the moment so you know yeah. I, I play all you know like any organist i play all sorts of repertoire but i have always been drawn to the modern repertoire and one of the things that appeals to me uh, is the sheer diversity of it And so I've played things which are pop-inspired, minimalist, uh, maybe jazz-inspired. I've played stuff which is really pretty far out and experimental. Uh, There's just so much colour there, and composers are still writing for the organ. And one of the things I particularly enjoy, actually, I I really like working with music with a composer who isn't an organist. Yes, it might throw up the odd practical consideration if they don't really understand the instrument as fully as an organist would. You have to help them through that. But I do like that you end up with a blank canvas sometimes when it comes to how you use the instrument and the composer might say something like they want it to sound well, Giles Swain in Riff Raff for example um, extraordinary yeah. piece from the 80s he 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 obviously does know about organs because he asks for specific sounds but he also says stuff like nasal you know he just des- describes the timbre he wants and so you can have fun engaging with that sort of stuff and I find composers even if they've never worked with the organ before are really excited by it and by its possibilities and it might be by the power it might be by um the way it inhabits a particular space and each organ has a particular personality it might be specific uh, colors that an organ might exhibit i've i've never had any problem engaging composers with the organ uh, and
0: you know you just end up with this diverse repertoire it's great I've got a composer a friend, actually, who once described the organ to me as almost the oldest synthet- synthesizer there is out there. Um, you, you know, and it, it's been used, I suppose we could go off on tangents here, couldn't we? But it's used to mimic orchestras, um, perhaps a, a Renaissance band. And and I think, that you know, with technology on our side now, the organs themselves are so many gizmos, don't they? But also integrating electronic performance with organ music it's almost a ba- boundless potential isn't it
1: yeah it is actually I mean I've got to say I, I heard a concert at Huddersfield University a few weeks ago it seems like years ago but it was the end of February but of course you know we've been in lockdown more or less since then um, but anyway I, I went to this concert and it was organ and electronics and somebody in particular I uh, who I already knew actually who did some really interesting stuff was a composer called Pam Hume composer and organist who yeah. befo- she performed her own stuff and the thing is that she uh, had she had microphones inside the organ and was thus recording the live and there was an amazing speaker setup I should add so she was recording the live organ sound and then looping it back on itself and doing all sorts of stuff with the sound of the organ but adding layers of texture which you, no single player could achieve they're also um, some uh, there was some violin and uh, other instruments in there as well, and she created a sound world which uh, you could only achieve by electronic electronics, but it was musically very, very strong, so well written, and uh, it really opened my eyes.
0: I found that very exciting indeed. S- small world, she's a good friend of mine, actually, and I have heard some of this. It's it, as you say, the live looping, I think, versus fixed electronics, it's almost, dare I say, more of a challenge, isn't it? Because they have to be constantly. Um, Analyzing and I guess tweaking what they're hearing as they perform, but but I, I I agree completely. It's a you know the organ is such a flexible instrument to start with, but when you do that to it, it does almost break down the bounds of what you think is possible.
1: Well, yeah, I mean it's just another twist of the kaleidoscope, isn't it? And that's I think that's why I love playing the organ. You can uh, sit on a small eighteenth century English organ and play I don't know some handle. One day and then the next day you could be sat in some vast space playing Messiaen uh, and another day you could be <laughs> working with electronics. My understanding of what Pam does is that she manages it all herself from the console whereas some of the yeah. other performers who work with electronics have, have somebody sitting at a desk uh, away from the organ managing all the electronic stuff um separately so you end up with a collaboration between two performers so that the fact that Pam does it all herself as far as I can see uh, is is particularly uh, astonishing especially again since the results are so strong you know it's just very tight really creative great stuff really good I commend it to any any of the listeners
0: it's almost like sitting in a cockpit isn't it and trying to make sure you're in charge of all the different controls of, of a large aircraft
1: well no I literally I mean she has all these things I I I, I I can barely work my
0: phone. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how she does it, but there you go. Yeah. And you mentioned also uh, Messiaen, I think. Now, I know uh, from our conversations in previous weeks that you're working on one of his, I think monumental is the only word I can think of, one of his most most monumental works. Pe- perhaps you could tell us a bit about that project.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a dream come true in some ways. So I've always loved Messiaen's organ music. And again, there's, uh, uh, you know, like so many 20th century composers, there's a great big spread. There are pieces which uh, people find very scary to listen to, but there are other pieces which which are not scary. Um, and then right at the end of his, well, you know, pretty much at the end of his career, he wrote one more organ cycle, um, and it's the *Livre de Saint-Sacrement. And this is from the early 80s. It is pushing two hours long, 18 movements, uh, and... I mean I don't know, I don't want to make too much of it being a summation I mean there are, there are aspects of his musical language which are not represented particularly strongly in there and there are other things which come across a lot like there's a heck of a lot of bird song for example which is just I love that it's wonderful um but it, it, it's an enthralling piece and uh And massive, as you've said. So I've wanted to do it for a while, because opportunities to do the whole thing at once are few and far between. So I'm supposedly doing it at Westminster Cathedral uh, in their Grand Organ Festival towards the end of the year in November. Now whether that actually happens this year um, is another matter. But I'm thoroughly enjoying learning this thing, and I've decided to start doing a vlog of the learning process now whether that works out is another matter but, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway yeah so I, I, I just find it oh it's just such powerful music it's so emotive it's so colourful it's exciting um, it, it's the way he uses space as well I'm sure I've heard people say, oh, you can't really play Messiaen in a dry acoustic. I'm, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think you can create the sense of space. I think that's part of the challenge. But certainly it's true that when you sit at a large instrument in a generous acoustic, uh, it
0: it just sort of all falls into place. It's it's wonderful, yeah. It's had an amazing sound wall, because I think he... Did he see in colour?
1: Yeah, he had synesthesia. Uh, and so if it, those people uh, listening who, who might not have come across that before... It's a condition where the different senses. I mean, I used to think it was simply a relationship between sound and sight, between colour and uh, and uh, and what you hear, music specifically. Uh, but I, I think it, it's a broader term than that. I think, it, yeah, it's, it's where different senses kind of collide with one another. So in Messian's case, uh, he perceived colours in direct response to music and in his some of his writings he describes in some considerable detail what it was he perceived what it was he saw um and who knows what exactly that looked like in you know beyond the colors what was it some sort of like migraine like sort of aura i mean who knows but he that he would see these colors uh in response to uh particular keys particular modes they'd all have a different um they'd all have a different hue or a different collection of colors and it's very interesting because it, it leads him in in places, to write in in a way that's informed by that, even though the listener wouldn't actually know, but it just adds another layer when you do know. So, for example, his Mestalopontico, a Pentecost piece, uh, the last movement of that, certainly, I've, I've not analysed the rest of it, but I, I did analyse the the last movement when I was at music college. Um, and the modes he uses throughout are those which gave him red and yellow and gold and orange and the colours of Pentecost, basically, uh, which is a really quite... Uh, Quite interesting, and and there are other examples of that sort of thing. But I had a friend who had synesthesia, and she didn't respond to... And again, it was a visual, um, aural thing. uh, But she didn't respond to particular pitch, as Messian clearly did. With her, it was about timbre. So uh, she'd see a particular orb around somebody's head when they sang or spoke. And it would be different for each person, according to the timbre of their voice. So I would have a different orb... I think mine was a particular shade of yellow. I seem to remember. Uh, I would have a different one to to you, to Catherine Jenkins, to you know um, Boris Johnson. You know, whoever everybody's voice, whether they're singing or speaking, would uh, give her a different um, color. Amazing, really. I don't fully understand it, but there we are.
0: <laughs> so you had a, you had a halo essentially.
1: <laughs> I had a halo for the one and only time in my life, David. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And it's, I mean, it's such a big piece, this, I, I confess. I, years ago, I learnt one of the much, much easier movements in the Leverage of But h- how do you go about learning something on that scale? Because it's not music that, I would say, readily lies under the hands.
1: Well, I know this is a funny thing, because I think, and I don't, I'm not sure whether this is nature or nurture day, because it, I've played a lot of modern music since I was a student and before. I, I find it much easier learning stuff like that or it's certainly less stressful, Um, even allowing for the fact that there are places where it's technically very difficult, uh, I find it easier to get that stuff into my head than I do, say, playing a Bach fugue. Um, So, you know, I've I've given my fair share of all Bach performances, or mainly Bach programmes, and it's always the most amazing musical experience, uh, but definitely more stressful than playing Messiaen. Uh, Even... You know, I, I don't know, I know that's not everybody's experience, and I have these conversations sometimes with other colleagues who are saying, well, I'm learning such and such a modern piece at the moment, and I, uh, you know, I'm really struggling to get it into my head, how do you practice that, Tom? But the thing is, I'll then hear the same person play uh, a piece of Bird or... You know, Bach or or whatever, and there'll be something about the way they're managing their ornaments, or the way that they're pacing something, or shaping a phrase, and I sort of think, how are you doing that? You know, uh, because it, I, I have to think about that a little bit more, maybe. Um, so it, I'm, like I say, I'm not sure whether that's just the way I'm my brain works, or whether it's just because I've got quite a bit of experience on that front. As for dealing with the the sheer quantity of notes, actually, funnily enough, the Ogu project um, performance, which was. Pretty much exactly a year ago, actually, it was in the middle of May last year. Uh, that preparing for that performance was pretty good um, practice for for this experience. Because I was playing 44 of the Chorale Preludes, um, just shy of two hours' worth of music. Some of them I had played before. Most of them, uh, about 11 I'd played before, including the Bach pieces, or some of the Bach pieces. So the remainder I had to learn specially, some Bach, some modern, most modern, in fact. Um, And... It was this extraordinary juggling act because, um, well, I spoke to John Scott Whiteley about it, who was also one of the performers, and he, he just described the process as maddening, um, trying to keep on top of all. So I, I came up with a system where I divided the pieces into groups, uh, tried to have the same uh, average difficulty level across the whole group, and um, it, so I had, I'd, have, um, I'd arrange my practice on three-day cycles. So I'd have a day where group one I was doing detailed slow Work fixing problems and all the rest of it. Group two, I'd I'd just simply play it through. Group three would have a rest, and the next day, you know, I'd mix it up. So it, over the course of three days, uh, each set of pieces, each little group, uh, would would have a rest. Each group would have some detailed work, very time consuming, and uh, each group would just just be played through. And I'm working towards a similar system. Well, I'm, I am working on a similar similar system with the messian, but I haven't got it all up and running yet, so it's not. Uh, not not everything's in a group yet, if you see what I mean. Uh, but that, I think that's the only realistic way of dealing with it, because if you try when it's two hours of music or near near enough, uh, if you try to practice in depth every single piece every day or every practice session, I mean, you just drive yourself. You can't do it. I mean, you, your brain can't cope with it. It's too tiring. So you have to you have to come up with a system. Um, so that I mean, in a nutshell, that's how I how I deal with. Uh, with learning that quantity of music and i think you also have to be patient as well you have to accept that stuff is going to slowly drip feed into your subconscious and don't expect too much soon too too soon don't don't sit there and think well i've been looking at this piece for a couple of months now i should be able to play it beautifully because it's not going to be like that when there are so many other balls to to juggle so you you just have to allow yourself time and accept that well actually i don't need it to be absolutely 100 percent ready till you know early November <laughs> in fact in some ways it will go off the boil if it was already bef- you know much before then uh, so you, you have to not panic
0: if there's a piece that's still proving difficult after a lot of work you just have to accept that it'll take a bit more time. You know I was reading um, c- quite recently a Stephen Huff's new book um, Rough Ideas it's called and one of the things he mentioned was that he tries to start learning a piece one year before it's usually a concerto but one year before its performance and exactly that that it's that slow drip effect it's not going to come overnight and you've got to sort of get get used to a piece and live with it almost so it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about that for example a three-day cycle approach
1: yeah well i think um if i could be so bold in our tradition as organists uh and i would say i mean you you know you've uh worked in institutions uh, that are roman catholic and institutions which are anglican but I, I would say particularly in the the anglican tradition, Um, or at least particularly in a place where the the substantial choral music being sung every single day all accompanied by the organ or mostly accompanied by the organ um, and you have to provide organ voluntaries and all the rest of it and that a lot of that playing falls on the shoulders of one person uh, there is a culture of learning music fast and just churning it out and it it's a it's interesting talking to continental organists who are awed by that they can't believe how how fast we can learn things in this country and then deliver the goods accurately. And, of course, there are plenty of times when we don't. But, you know, it, uh, uh, on the whole, it, it, it's it's really quite impressive. Um, but you, I think that can become a mindset. And I think the idea of spending a year learning something would be quite alien to a lot of organists. And, and, yeah. and certainly, you know, it's something I've had to learn to do. Um, it seems self-evident as an approach now to me, but... Um, when you don't feel like you've got the time, or in your, or if you're in the habit of picking something up just a few weeks before you're supposed to be performing it and learning it in a hurry. Um, yeah, you lose the depth when you do that, but it, you you
0: might not question it when you're a student, if you see what I mean. Yeah, on the treadmill, I suppose, aren't you? One of the things I've always admired about you as a performer is is the breadth of music you take on. Now, we've talked about cutting-edge uh, contemporary repertoire, but I'm aware you're also very interested in some of the Victorian Uh, body of repertoire. Perhaps you could tell us about one of your perhaps more, how do I put it, is eccentric too harsh a word to use? One of your more eccentric projects recently?
1: Well, yeah, I don't know. This is the WT Best thing, isn't it? So um, many listeners will have heard of WT Best, those who haven't. He was organist of St George's Hall in Liverpool from 1855 to the early 1890s when he retired. Uh, Gruff North Countryman, he was from Carlisle. Um, As far as we can work out, largely self-taught organist, um, although he worked with he had good resources, he had good tutor books that he was working with as far as we can work out. And he was uh, arguably the most famous and the greatest and certainly I would have suggested the busiest or one of the busiest uh, organ recitalists in the world in his day. Uh, and just to put this into context, we've just been talking about spending time with music and, um, uh, you know, planning ahead. This, this chap was playing three concerts a week at St George's Hall, all with different repertoire Um often playing arrangements and transcriptions that he um, created from orchestral scores himself. In fact, a lot of the repertoire was that. Yet he also found the time to, for example, do little things, little add-ons, like opening the organ uh, in the Royal uh, Albert Hall, opening the organ in Sydney Town Hall, Australia. You know, He, he travelled the world. Um, and he's a fascinating character. So I'm interested... About, I'm interested in him and his work but I'm also interested generally in the Victorian organ and particularly uh, I think the sort of music that was played on the Victorian organ and the way in which it was played, the way the instrument was manipulated, uh, I think those are things which we've forgotten about and part of that is we're very used to since... uh, The 20th century certainly since between the wars uh, we're very used to having pistons to push buttons with numbers on underneath the keys um, uh, and you can preset the organ to produce any sound you want to pretty much uh, very rapidly now when you don't have those sort of rapid fire uh, registration aids as we call them that control the stops for you you then you, you have to rely on much more cumbersome mechanical controls for bringing out stops which have been preset by the organ builder you can't do anything about the choice uh, or you have to do it by hand and that interests me from a performance point of view because in order to change stops by hand especially in a big fast dramatic piece you have to you know it's going to have an impact on the tempo you choose it's going to have an impact on rubato how you shape the performance if there needs to be a change of stops there you've got to think about the logistics of it quite hard and, and how you're going to shape the music to suit that moment without twisting the music out of all recognition. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff there. And what it's all boiled down to, and it's, it's ongoing research and quite a lot of hard work, um, but I've, I've started putting together these concerts, which I'm calling the Best Experience, um, ho, ho, ho. Uh, and they're based around WT Best's uh, organ arrangements and um, and additions. So it's, it's original organ music as well as orchestral arrangements. And I'm putting, t- putting together and performing Victorian-style programme inspired by Best's work and interspersing the uh performances of music with readings uh and you know just a little bit of an introduction to who best was and some of the other personalities of the day um there are some nice references to the organ in bits of literature here and there for example uh just throwing all that in there uh, so there's a sort of learned element to this whereby i might find myself writing articles about uh best spark edition which is very interesting uh but at the same time it's about putting together these concerts which I do in costume i have to say i've, I've not said that yet oh I? wow yeah so i, I, I went, <laughs> you know i got the, the 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 snazzy coat and trousers and i wear braces which i've never worn before in my life and um, um all of this sort of stuff and i grew a massive great big beard which i have to say i've been quite pleased to get rid of temporarily during the course of uh coronavirus but um uh because it got rather unmanageable. But anyway, yes, that's it. So I dress I dress up and I've even got
0: glasses which look vaguely Victorian and um, and I polish my shoes and all sorts of things. <laughs> I was going to say, you really, really pull the stops out, but that's a terrible pun, isn't it?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's all good fun. The, the only thing I would say, I, I had this idea, I've literally just started doing these, having developed it over the, you know, I know we've talked about it when we've met a few times in the recent months, Um and the idea was to launch it this year now obviously that's been slightly kiboshed by um you know I- events in public health uh, but I, I did do uh one performance in london organ day at union chapel on a lovely victorian organ uh, just at the end of february which is the first one and i did another in the isle of man on a lovely victorian organ in the middle of march about two days before we got locked down it was the you know who knows might be the last concert i do this year so uh, but there I, there were other concerts planned for later in the year and one of them was going to be videoed and be turned into a sort of promotional video and all this sort of stuff so it's something I want to be uh, and I've got some stuff lined up for 2021 but I, I want to be pushing these things because they're it's really good fun but the, I'm, there's an element of development still going on where I have to think about how I change character because uh, if I'm talking to the audience maybe doing a reading or, or whatever then I'm being me aren't I when I sit at the console I'm trying to emulate the mysterious Victorian organist you know loosely WT Best so how do I how do I change characters coherently so I had this idea that I just simply swapped glasses from the Victorian style glasses to my own um, but it's not very visible at the back of a large concert hall if I do that so I thought well I'll try taking my greatcoat off and then putting it back on again but frankly that takes ages and looks incredibly clumsy um, so I'm not quite sure what to maybe I should wear a wig and take it on and off or something. I don't know. So if you if you have any
0: suggestions, do uh do do let me have them. I <laughs> sort of wonder if Simon Callow might be free for a double act. But... Ah, now that now you're talking, <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Or Timothy West, he did that um Beeching film, didn't he? Thomas Beeching film. Yes. So maybe I could get him to I I mean, W T Best was a bit of a Thomas Beeching type character. There are lots of anecdotes about cutting remarks or witty remarks or whatever, you know, he was he was very much cut from that sort of cloth. Um, they don't make them like that anymore.
0: Well, I guess going from um, whether we say ridiculous to sublime or vice versa, but one of your, um, I guess, ongoing roles with the Royal College of Organists is, is, I guess, mentoring the education, certainly around the northern region. And I know in recent times the RCO has really been at the forefront of of digital learning, could you tell us a little bit about what they 're doing at the moment? i know there's a lot of um varied initiative in in this period of lockdown
1: yeah um actually it's been quite exciting um i, I think there was, there are certain there are certain positive legacies uh for which will come out of uh lockdown and all the rest of it uh i i, I mean i know that's not going to be true for every organization because you know <laughs> some are really really struggling but as it happens um with the rco that it's it's proved to be something an opportunity so there's a thing called irco and this has existed for a number of years and i mean just before we started recording david you were saying how how impressed you've been by some of the, the content wonderful yes uh, there's all sorts of stuff tutorial videos uh, stuff dealing with all, all all manner of topics to do with um Repertoire, technique, the organ, uh, et etc., etc. cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It's not all focused towards RCO examinations by any means. But IRCO exists behind a paywall. Uh, you get it free if you're an RCO member, and you can buy uh, clumps of content uh, if you're not. And, and it's well worth exploring. Now, the thing is, all of a sudden, that material uh, has continued to grow and be added to it over the last few years, uh, and there was an ambition to add yet more. But the thing is, all our classes and all our face-to-face tuition that should be happening right now, obviously that's stopped. Uh, and so we've been putting more stuff online than previously has been the case. So there have been webinars on stuff pertaining to uh, diplomas uh, there are various other things going on um i'm about to do three short classes uh, on playing modern music i'm going to be doing this vlog of my learning of the messian um who knows how that'll turn out the rco uh, and, and, and so you've got all of that sort of stuff some stuff which is quite involved some stuff which is quite lengthy in, ca- in some cases there's a VN video because it's his anniversary this year for example uh, but there's also the lighter hearted stuff so uh, there's, an, yeah, there's an A to Z of the organ uh, which is in production at the moment. Uh, in fact, I think the first couple, A and B, went out this week. A is anthology, B is Bach, inevitably, um, and uh, and so it goes on. Uh, and I've, I've done a couple of them. So th- there's this cornucopia... There you go, I was determined to use that word. Um, oh, it's a fine word. It's <laughs> a very fine word. There's a cornucopia, <laughs> a plethora uh, of new content Um, and it's currently free to access I mean you know clearly some of it in due course will have to disappear behind the paywall again Um, but hopefully it will have given people a taste of what's available Uh, but there will be more stuff on the YouTube and on those sorts of channels as well which is free to view so uh, it's a massive growth uh, in in the amount of content that's there and as I say it's uh, you know it ranges in style and in content it suits everybody from the professional to the aspiring student to the novice to the, the generally interested in music and organs uh, everybody's catered for uh, it's it's dynamic and it's exciting it's incredibly well presented I mean I'm a, I'm a technophobe
0: really so I wouldn't have a clue but uh, I can just about switch a camera on and record myself so that's 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 what I've been involved with doing. It's, I think it's been really impressive and the RCO as with so many organisations at the moment various unions have I think really dare I say up their game to support all of their members um and it's you know as you said with the RCO there's so much on there isn't there to so talk about practice technique uh ideas for repertoire I think it's it's a really really good thing to have there
1: well I mean yeah and indeed I, I don't know if your podcast that you know we're talking on now is a, is a uh was something you were already planning whether it's something that's grown out of uh coronavirus and similarly the the webinars that uh, that you're doing um in the diocese of leeds that, that there's lots and lots of kind of online stuff that sort of seems to be being developed and i i mean think about it organists are locked out of churches at the moment um many of them unable to play at the very least unable to play a pipe organ even if they've got a digital at home to practice on and thank goodness i do um you know we're, we're all sort of starved of our music making regardless of whether it's a hobby um a sort of Uh, a sideline a profession uh, something we're studying very seriously whatever place we're at um we're all missing uh quite a a big section of our life there so there's a need to provide uh leadership guidance fun content of various different kinds you know it's it's i mean we'd be failing in our duty if you weren't doing it basically i think is what i'm saying
0: I think so I think as with last last week Ben Saunders ending on such a I think profound statement I must say that's a really dare I say a really good way for us to end and a really you know food for thought I think and what goes on so um, to all of our listeners thank you for joining us today a reminder that on Monday, we're going to hear the German organist Friedhelm Flammer from the Vox Organi Festival, who, amongst other composers, is going to be playing works by W.F. Bach and Henri Moulet. And then do join me again, please, next Friday to hear our next guest joining me for half an hour or so's chat about organ music in this country and around the world. So, again, thank you, Tom Bell, for joining us today and for giving us so many things to think about. Pleasure. Thanks, say Goodbye.